Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to 3CR Freedom of Species here on Sunday. My name is Andy Medic, and we have an amazing show here today. We're going to have a very packed studio, actually. We have uh, Roy, myself, Kate, and Emma. And we actually have a very, very special guest by the name of Lynn Johnson, who's going to have a chat with us about rhino horn and its end use. Kate Gracie interviewed Damien Mander a few months ago, who's literally tackling the issue of rhino and elephant poaching on the ground, getting in between the poachers' guns and the rhinos themselves, military style. Action he sees we have to take. No amount of talks or new NGOs will omit the simple urgent necessity of the role he and his army. They need to be there. The rhinos and elephants need 24-hour bodyguards like a bank vault. Today we speak with Lynn Johnson from an organisation called Breaking the Brand where they tackle the rhino poaching issue basically from the other end. Not the pointy end of the horn, so to speak, as Damien Manta does, but the big butt end of consumption, which is driving the $75,000 a kilogram price for rhino horn. Thanks for joining us today, Lynn. Lovely to be here. Can you take us through the lead up to and what inspired you to actually um, find your organisation, Breaking the Brand? Well, I'd been looking to make a contribution back and I've always been passionate about wildlife and conservation. And when I had the time and the resources to be able to do that, I wanted to look at an area where I could utilise my skills and my background is in the area of corporate behaviour change, culture change, leadership change and and change of behaviours in the business world. And I, I just felt that looking at what was happening uh, for, a, uh, on, for a lot of conservation issues, um, the human behavioural aspect wasn't being broached. And because uh, for a lot of issues, it's about our personal consumption. And um, But I, of course, I had to pick one. And in, in 2012, I was listening to the radio a lot and hearing a lot about rhino poaching and how it was escalating and, and how serious this was becoming. So I thought, well, obviously, that's the species that we have to start with. And who is consuming rhino horn at the moment and who's driving the current demand? And that's where the research started. Can you give us an indication as to how desperate this issue is? It's, it's really... I find 
it really difficult because I know the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning is we've lost another, at least another three rhinos. So rhinos have been poached every six hours in the Kruger and uh, National Park. Um, you know, some some days up to six rhinos are lost a day. And, uh, and there's not that many rhinos left in the world. So the fact that, um, you know, every every morning as you wake up, you, you think, well, we've lost another three, we've lost another three, and um, uh, even in, you know, say 2014, and, um, something like 5% of the world's ri- wild rhinos were lost in 2014 alone. So it's actually a massive spike in poaching. And, um, and it all escalated from 2007. Prior to that, for about 17 years after the um, ban, and uh, and the and the the CITES ban and and the trade ban and um, there was very little poaching. So, um, but it it just all started again around two thousand and seven. So it's a new demand we're seeing. It's not a traditional demand. It's not about traditional Chinese medicine or tradition. It's it's a completely new type of demand that we're seeing. So, since two thousand and seven, mm-hmm. an obvious spike. Before you go into why mm-hmm. there was such an, a massive surge. Mm-hmm. Tell us how your advocacy is different to the many other organisations mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, speaking on behalf of the Rhino. Okay. And, um, well, when I started uh, interviewing the users of Rhino Horn, and, and, and at the moment uh, Vietnam is actually the primary driver of the poaching, and, um, though China is re-emerging as a buyer, and I can go into the details as, as to why that's the case. Um, it's, it was really apparent that the users uh, were never going to empathise with the animal. So trying to, um, uh, trying to get them to empathise with the animal and the, its plight was never going to happen. I had one user that I interviewed who said, look, I'd happily buy the last rhino horn money's not an object. And, um, uh, and so... People talked about trusting their South African supply chain and and really what was happening for the animal wasn't an issue. And they also weren't interested in the whole keratin nail um, uh, connection. It was just a case of, well, you know, we've heard that for so many years. That's not why we use it. Um, so sorry, let's um, just explain that. So basically the rhino horn is made of... It's very similar to fingernails. And Which t- is keratin. Yeah, that's right. That, that's that's right. all it is. That's right. So telling people that's all it is, guys, mm-hmm. start Chewing saving. your fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So um, basically you can you can get any kind of lab result you want mm-hmm. and say, guys, you're being duped. This costs mm-hmm. this much money mm-hmm. and it, that does not work. No. No. And the empathy for the animal. Historically, that's not worked. Um, the empathy for the animal and its plight and, um, doesn't resonate at all with the user group. So, and, and also the, uh, the goriness of, um, uh, and the cruelty of what's happening for the rhino um, doesn't have an impact on the user group. Does the, um, does the lack of empathy for the rhino, is that something that is similar for other, for other animal products in Vietnam? Is that... Is that typical in Vietnam or is it just the rhino? For some reason, is it just the rhino that they don't really care about? Well, I, I mean, I think certainly, um, you know, ivory is is a product that uh, the Vietnamese are using. Um, pangolin, um, you know, um, bare feet and um, wild meat restaurants are very popular in, in Vietnam. So it's it's something that um, it, it's, it's there's a... A sufficiently large group of people who aren't at this point in time empathetic, aren't uh, with um, 
one or more animal species to stop their consumption um, as a result of being shown adverts that will with the hope to triggering empathy, with the hope to triggering a rational argument that it's like fingernails. That's just not going to work for this user group. Well, I find that really interesting because I travelled through Vietnam and as a vegan, I found veganism very easy mm-hmm. in Vietnam mm-hmm. and they're very accommodating of veganism mm-hmm. and they they practice, I think, veganism once, once a month mm-hmm. for cultural religious reasons. Mm-hmm. Their monks are um, largely vegan or vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So it's strange then that then... There's just this sort of this cut-off or block to, mm-hmm. to animal empathy. Well, it's really interesting because obviously and one of the things I, I did explore was the Buddhist community. And it's amazing. Some of the most corrupt people in Vietnam visit the temples quite often for blessings. But they, you know, and... and, and the um, But they'll go from the temple after the blessing to a wild meat restaurant and eat pangolin. How bizarre. Mm-hmm. This disconnect. This this, complete... It's the disconnect. Yeah. 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 Is that a, a spiritual sort of like, um, I don't know, if you compare it with Catholicism, for instance, where you know, it doesn't matter perhaps what you've done if you go and confess your sins mm. and you can be absolved of that? Is, that? is that a situation there that they feel that, okay, if I, if I do this, that's okay because if I go to the temple mm. I can be absolved of that and then just carry on in my life? Is that an, an issue? Yeah. Well, I think when I've spoken to some um, uh, Buddhist monks that are very absorbed into the the teachings and traditions, they just feel that too much of the um, blessings are too superficial mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, when people are engaged in temples where the... Um, where the, the the monks have a much deeper learning, and um, I've learned so much about Buddhism. They say, <laughs> where they have a, a much deeper learning and a much deeper knowledge of um, Buddha's teachings, they are less likely to do this. Mm. Um, but apparent, but the problem is, and um, unfortunately, um, quite often the temples are also money making. Mm. So there's a lot of smaller temples that have sprung up. And uh, and you go for a, the, these these men, and it's you know the many men that I'm talking about when I'm talking about the users of Rhinohorn, they'll go for blessings to one temple, and if they don't get the results they want, they'll just go to another temple, and that's what some of the um, temples are worried about in Vietnam that they will lose some of their patrons if they don't give those blessings, and and if it gets too confronting for. The person. So this is some of the the, the the things that these other Buddhist monks have, have discussed with me, and about well, if we could get a deeper level of teaching, maybe that could help. But at the moment, a lot of the Buddhism in some of the areas, in some of the urban areas, is a little bit too superficial. It sounds like um, uh, the Reformation. In uh, it sounds like the same circumstances going on uh, prior to the Reformation in Europe with Martin Luther. Well, I suppose it's an interesting uh, link and um, not one I've explored. And, um, but, you know, that I think there's definitely Vietnam is in a significantly um, evolutionary period uh, where because of the explosion of wealth in the country and, and the explosion of opportunities in the country, people are actually wanting different things. And uh, as a result of that, they're challenging their political system or ignoring their political system they're challenging their spiritual history and uh, and and, um, and challenging their spiritual history. So there's lots of things happening. It's a very very complex and 
period in Vietnam. And there's a, I mean, I, speak, I was speaking to one businessman recently in Australia who uh, has been doing business with, uh, within China for, for many years now, and he's just started bus- doing business in Vietnam, and he called Vietnam China on steroids. Wow. So basically the spike in the the sale of rhino horn since 2007 Mm -hmm. is because of Vietnam and that growing middle class. Mm -hmm. Um, I know uh, on your website somewhere it says that basically uh, businessmen in Vietnam are taking rhino horn like a barocca after a night of indulgence. Mm -hmm. Can you just elaborate on that? that? uh, When I interviewed a lot of these guys... They acknowledge that there's no medical benefit. It's simply if you're hosting a, um, a networking night for business colleagues or, and at the end of the night, if you give them um, rice wine or water with rhino horn ground in it, you're saying, I'm somebody who has connections, I'm somebody who can afford this, I'm somebody to do business with. So it's again, it's a status symbol, even if it's been used in this detox way, as they talk about it, the millionaire's detox drink. And um, but it's still just a demonstration of status to your peer group or a group of people that you want to impress or or, or do business with. So it's and a very important part of the business culture. That, that that kind of symbolism is an etiquette that you're up against in your advocacy. Well, well, certainly yes, and definitely um, uh, that's uh, your peer group, your business network is very, very important to you in Vietnam. And uh, but this is still just a new fad, and uh, and it, and it is a fad, and uh, it is a, it's just a fashion at the moment, um, and unfortunately, it's a fashion that's you know and uh, um, not being challenged sufficiently in in a way that resonates with these users. Um, so so there's other ways that they've done this type of business networking and development in the past that hasn't used rhino horn. It's just right now rhino horn is one of the things that they use. It's a fashion we can't afford to have. Mm. That's right. And I don't know what you were going to ask. Oh, there. just, just uh, we have equivalents here, I guess. I'm thinking of the businessmen who might ha- share a cigar afterwards, um, you know, and it might be a, a Cuban cigar that's mm-hmm. made in, um, you know, appalling conditions mm-hmm. or, or whatever mm-hmm. exploitation mm-hmm. is involved. So we mm-hmm. have... The equivalent. It's not like we're we're any better, but every culture has their own um, version of the same practice. Well, I think I think um, that's it. I, I think, uh, and at the same time, this is not. It's it's not an entrenched cultural issue. It's not. Um, it, it's not something that's been around for mm. centuries. It's something that is just um, now. Now. And yep. uh, but now at a time when we have less than thirty thousand animals yeah. left mm. in the yeah, wild, it's much more critical. That's yeah. the thing. So how are you going about this? Like what your advocacy? What does it involve? Your your mm-hmm. you went into how you've done so much research mm-hmm. into the culture and with mm-hmm. the people and the mm-hmm. user groups. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about about that? Like what's your strategy? Okay. And uh, well, fortunately, I was able to um, interview um, uh, people primarily in Ho Chi Minh City and Hanoi who were, were who were within the demographic group who can afford rhino horn. And when I interviewed them, uh, starting 2013, and um, what basically came up was the only reason they would stop using rhino horn is if using it negatively impacted their health, or if using it negatively impacted their status. 
So at the moment, obviously, it's beneficial to their status to give rhino horns. So we had to think of a way of how do we undermine the status and turn that on its head. So uh, unfortunately, the only two ways that um, um, to, for the users to stop using rhino horn in a time frame that's useful to save the animal for, from extinction in the wild is health anxiety and status anxiety. So our campaigns have used those issues to promote that. So we don't, one of the things that we don't do is we um, the primary um, visual on, to, on uh, the campaign is actually the user. So and if there is a if there is a, a backup image, it, we might use the rhino. But on and, um, most of the campaigns, we a, a haven't actually used images of rhinos. We've just used images of users. And from a status anxiety perspective, we talk about um, if you have to use rhino horn as part of your business deals, it really shows that you're not really a smart and savvy businessman. So, you know, you're, you're really a pale imitation of a business leader. And, um, and, uh, and you know, that um, if, you, if, you had, if you were much more um, capable as a business leader, you wouldn't have to use these, this trickery and this, these fashions and to, to negotiate business deals. So that's the approach that we've taken. We've also reminded people, because obviously in the media... When, when people are talking about um, wildlife criminals, they talk about poachers and they talk about the traffickers, but they don't talk about the users. And it's an illegal activity. So again, when, when, you, when you present the picture of a businessman uh, with his colleagues and, uh, drinking rhino horn and, and uh, um, but say, you know, what does a wildlife criminal look like? And reminding them that they are wildlife criminals. So for the businessmen who aren't doing this type of activity in Vietnam, do you really want to do somebody? Do you really want to do business with somebody? One is a pale imitation of a business leader and two is, is, is effectively a criminal. So is that the sort of person that you want to do business with? That's so a clever tactic. It's yeah, great, it is. isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's ostracising them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the basic, basically it's illegal, but that does, they don't care about it being illegal no, either. No, yeah. it's above the law. They, feel abo- they are above the law. And, um, uh, given, given the status of these guys in the society, they feel above the law and they are above the law. Is there, like, in that essence, is there a certain amount of uh, insinuation that money changes hands and the corruption to the authorities? Oh, I think that, you know, certainly um, uh, the, it's not just businessmen who use rhino horn, it's diplomats, it's government officials, mm. it's, it's people who are in that elite group. Yeah, I had and, a suspicion yeah. that that was what was going to be the answer, but I, I thought it, would, it bore the question, yeah. yeah. You're listening to 3CR 855am, the Freedom of Species show, and we are having a great discussion with Lynn Johnson. Um, sorry, Dr. Lynn Johnson. From <laughs> you don't have to use the doctor. She's modestly putting her hand up saying don't use the doctor. About her organisation she, found, she founded called Breaking the Brand, where they tackle the rhino poaching issue basically from the other end, not the pointy end of the horn, so to speak, but the, the other big butt end of consumption and dealing with the users of rhino horn, which is driving the $75,000 a kilo price mm-hmm. for rhino horn. $75,000 One of the most expensive commodities in the world right now. More, uh, more expensive than gold, cocaine. Wow. It is illegal. It has been illegal for how long? 1993, most people signed up to the CITES. Including Vietnam, I think. <coughs> yes. <Yeah>. So... <coughs> There's been talk of legalising a trade uh, mm. um, to protect the rhino populations mm. by farming them. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of this talk seems to come from those who will profit from it. I mean, I was surprised to find out 25% of the rhino herd are owned by private landholders. Ajah, there's some... Or something um, like that. Uh, yeah. There's some very... Uh, there's some a small number of um, people and, uh, in uh, southern Africa who who own some substantial populations of rhinos. John Hume is the pri- largest private rhino owner who is pushing for trade. And he's probably the poster boy for a pro-trade approach. Um, I think the interesting thing is that as I've uh, spoken to the pro-trade people um, and asked them to to produce a a business case um, and what the research they've done into the user, they've never been able to do that. They only, and their business case is from a supply side uh, process. So they they talk about rhino horns being, uh, rhinos being relatively easy to farm they talk about how relatively easy it is to dehorn, and um, but they don't actually talk about the users at the other end. Now, the, all of the research that I did with the users in Vietnam indicated that they don't see a farm product as a substitute product, and uh, they are not interested in um, farm dry, a farm dry no horn. Why is that? Because they, um, it's all about um, chi and the energy. So they see that wild rhinos actually have to fight for survive. And um, so that makes them higher status. They also see that, for, um, sorry, wild rhinos have to fight for survive, so that gives them a higher status. And they also eat natural food, so that makes them stronger. So it's this, it's, it's linked to the status of a wild rhino, and they want that rare product, the the, the wild rhino. So um, they actually ask for the ears and the tail of the rhino to be presented with the horn, so they know that it's coming from a rhino that's been killed, and so it's it's less likely to come from a farmed, domesticated rhino because they're just not interested in um, farmed rhino as a substitute as a substitute product. So the, the, they are farming rhino for, uh, they are, as well? At the moment, yeah. John Hume and his ilk yeah. are building up their populations uh, with the view of um, pushing for a legalisation in the international trade of rhino horn. And um, so that might not happen uh, at this meeting, that's at the CITES meeting this year, but if... Um, but what what they'll try to do is keep that option open until 2019, which will be really detrimental to the rhino. Because while there's still a possibility, it's um it's you know it's it's still something that could that they will push to maintain the high levels of demand. It's incredible, isn't it? It's like you're you're talking about scotch or something. It's yeah. like an alcohol or something. Mm-hmm. It will so even farming them will drive mm-hmm. the elite. Mm-hmm. sort of marketing value mm-hmm. of the, the wild mm-hmm. rhino. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, you can't actually, because everything's illegal, you can't market it at all. There's no advertising campaigns. But if it became legal, of course, it would be easy to, it would be legitimate to market it and advertise it. So that would only drive up demand. And at the moment, I mean, I, I looked at the closest thing they had to a business plan, which was pretty meagre, and they're doing everything based on being able to supply 1,500 to 2,000 rhino horns into the market each year. But like I said, well, like I asked them, what if it's 5,000 horns? What if it's 10,000 horns? I mean, Vietnam has a population of 90 million, and now the the Chinese are re-entering the market, and we've got 1.4 billion. And um, and I think that, um, you know, at the moment, I, I think that the middle class amounts to 500 million in 
Asia and by the by 2020 it's 1.75 billion Gosh. and you know it's Pandora's box that they could potentially mm. open with this that they're just not thinking through what they can supply is 1500 to 2000 horns a year mm. and their, their business model is based on what they can supply and has nothing to do with, with demand. the demand yeah well that thanks for debunking that one so the myths of farming when you talk about China potentially mm-hmm. entering the market, will, mm-hmm. will the, the Chinese cultural practices be similar to and the, the Chinese attitudes to mm-hmm. animals and mm-hmm. animal empathy towards, your, towards rhino? Is that mm-hmm. the same as the Vietnamese or is it quite a different mm-hmm. kettle of fish? Well, it's interesting. When I was speaking to the Chinese community and as I was doing the initial research, the reason rhino horn is re-entering the Chinese market is for speculation purposes. Basically, people are buying it up, banking on extinction. Again, wow. again, it doesn't come it doesn't come down to traditional medicine. It's um, when I spoke to the Chinese people in the Chinese community several years ago when I was doing the research, what they actually said was the law around rhino horn in China is very black and white, and um, there's no shades of grey. Where the law around ivory, there's lots of loopholes, and uh, and people in the Chinese community don't like to break the law, but they're happy to use the loopholes. So um, what they said to me at the time, several people, was that, you know, we'll, we'll keep using the ivory, we'll leave the rhino horn to the Vietnamese. Now, the prices kept on increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing and until we reach, really reached a tipping point where it, from a, a star of wealth perspective, for a, from a speculation perspective, you know, people in China decided it was, it was worth breaking the law to buy rhino horn for speculation purposes. So this is really what's happened um, in China in recent years. It's interesting too because I understand with the shark fin campaign, mm-hmm. they've actually had they've made some successful inroads mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. reducing shark fin mm-hmm. consumption mm-hmm. in China mm-hmm. um, through, with empathetic campaigns that they, they can't use that same approach with the Chinese for the rhino horn. If, I mean, if it works, if that empathy worked for the shark fin, would it not work for the rhino horn? I mean, I'm not sure about how much inroads has been made. I know coming up to the Olympics and, uh, in Beijing, and um, you know that the the Chinese government officials did talk about um, not using rhino horn in in political um, banquets. Yeah. And yep. um, but I don't really know how how much okay. inroads has genuinely been made. But they could have been. I just don't know. Yeah, okay. And um, so certainly from an ivory perspective, I do see it is a you know status anxiety campaigns from an ivory perspective and would be very useful in China, um, and and would probably have a chance of working. I mean, for instance, the information that I've passed on to people working on ivory demand reduction, is a lot of people in China are actually going to the UK and doing etiquette workshops. Mm. And, uh, and it's like there's this desire to, to be seen to be correct. And it's, it's using the reasons why they're doing that. That would be what I would feed into uh, demand reduction for ivory and that whole sense of etiquette and how they people are worried about how they're being perceived around the world. They want professional opportunities they want commercial opportunities mm. with the outside world and as a result of that they're looking at under a level of etiquette in how to be able to deal with people and business people 
globally. And, and, and really that is something that could be really used. In fact, one of the things that, that we would like to do at, uh, in the future is what we've seen is rhino horn users will... They would stop using rhino horn if it meant that they could be accepted into a higher status group. <laughs> so when I spoke to them about who they were influenced by, um, the guys were influenced by the likes of Richard Branson, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Barack mm. Obama. And to be accepted into that group, they would give up rhino horn. So are, you, are we talking the Chinese or Vietnamese? Vietnamese cult- that are the, the, are the ones Vietnamese that... Mainly. But I think that something like that, I mean, would, would apply to the uh, Chinese user as well. But obviously my research has been in Vietnam, not China. Can I just ask about the inroads that you've had or the, the um, feedback you've had about with your campaigns mm-hmm. that now you've told us they work on the status anxiety and their health aspect? Okay. Yes, yeah. Can you tell us about the inroads or successes or challenges that you've you've come across? And uh, well, I mean, we're still quite teeny tiny compared to, you know, the big campaigns. But anecdotally, when I've been in Vietnam, and um, people have talked about our campaigns and the fact that they've seen them and there's chatter in the right demographic groups. We've been spending in the region of twenty five thousand to thirty thousand Australian dollars per campaign. In fact this this one that we've just launched we've we've got the biggest donation ever. We've got ninety thousand Australian dollars. That means that we can publish um, adverts right the way through to uh, November when there's an international conference on the wildlife trade in Hanoi. So definitely we're we're hearing positive things. We haven't had the funds yet to do an evaluation, but with this campaign, we have been offered some funds to do an evaluation, which is great. Probably the key challenge um, has been from the conservation sector itself. And, um, you know, the feedback is that our, they find our our campaigns too confronting. Um, they say things like our donors wouldn't be comfortable with that type of campaign. Um, it's too, they're too hard hitting. So why? You know, because they're mirrors. They're mirrors almost uh, because you're using the users as the focal point. I think that's the thing. It's it's um you know that they they just don't feel comfortable with the messaging. Um and they feel but I think primarily they feel worried that their donors don't feel won't feel comfortable with the messaging. So um from my perspective and uh, and I know it's incredibly com controversial. I know I upset a lot of people in saying this, but too many campaigns are created for donors, not for users. Mm. And um, so the donors go, this is great. Mm. And um, I mean, as an example, when say the the Jackie Chan campaign that Wild Aid did, um, you know, he's Chinese and a lot of the Vietnamese said to me, we don't like the Chinese. Why would we care about it? And and we also don't care about celebrities because celebrities can be paid to say anything. Mm. So they're not interested in celebrity campaigns. And so, so the only kudos they're actually giving is to people who are within their community who are seen to be successful within their own community, mm-hmm. people that they idolise mm-hmm. from within. Yeah. Or, yeah. well, actually, um, people they aspire, oh, they aspire uh, to. Aspire to oh, be. Business. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's within the demographic but not necessarily within the community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. What, what chance do you think John Hume has of getting his commercial operation off the ground? Well, I think at this point in time, um, the 
until, I mean, I think the, one of the reasons it's been put off is that South Africa hasn't been able to prove it's, it can get on top of the poaching and the corruption. Mm-hmm. I think um, they're, they're doing everything that they can possibly do to demonstrate that they can get on top of the poaching and the corruption. And, and that's um, what they're trying to do to, to give trade a chance. At the same time, nobody is looking at the trade from a demand side in mm. South Africa. Mm. So, I mean, they're only looking at it's as I as I I'm, I'm not a cook by any means, but I always I always use the de- uh, the, the the analogy of it's it's like putting a um, mixing up a cake mix and not putting it on the in the oven. It's just they're just doing half of the issue, mm. and nobody is looking at the demand. And um, except for breaking the brand, ex- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, thanks for the plug there, and. <laughs> Uh, the, yeah, so uh, I think that's the the concern is risk benefit models are being created in South Africa with only half of the information, mm. and and that's very worrying. Mm. I mean, considering the UN called for tougher animal trafficking enforcement just a few months ago, if that's implemented, I don't know if you've looked at what they're looking at there. What should that be in your mind? Is it literally just looking at the demand more? Well, I think that um, the it's one of the things I've I've found, and uh, as I've looked at a number of things in the supply chain, is just how little knowledge there is about um, what's happening at every level of the supply chain. So there's a there's a, a lot of people taught in in large conservation and, and groups around that saying we need more research, we need more data. And, and yes, we do, undoubtedly. I'm a science. I love science. And, and at the same time, you've got to accept and, um, that hard data might come too late. From my perspective, we have to take a precautionary principle and be much more decisive with some key species, including rhinos, to say and that we will, we, we will never trade in, in rhino and uh, horn. And then, um, you know, and that's, I think that's one of the things that needs to be looked at because when you look at this whole supply chain from the poaching on the ground right the way through the transit countries and uh, into the destination countries and all the corruption and along that chain, there's just so much to do that one, if we can target the customer and sort of chop the head off the chain yes. and uh, that could help the chain collapse. And um, But two, if we... if 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 the supply opportunity if the, is still in place and um, there's just too much effort going into keeping the demand alive with the view that we might be able to su- legally supply in future. We need to cut the head off that as well. Uh, for some of these species, we need to take a precautionary principle and we can't wait for all of the data. We can't wait for all of the analysis. If it, if it was 20 years ago, I'd say fine, and, uh, but it's just too late And um, with the uh, timeframes that we've got for some of these animals. What's the likelihood with the, with the large Vietnamese community here in Australia, what's the likelihood that there's... Um, there's rhino horn being used here. There the is rhino horn being used here. And, and, uh, and how do they get it in? And, uh, when they go back to... And, and they confirmed that to me. And, um, as, I mean, 
I need to say that the Vietnamese community in Melbourne has been fantastic in helping me with my research. Um, the models for all of the adverts come from the local Vietnamese community. They all donate their time for free. Wow, Anything that we can do to help, they, they promote the adverts and with their friends and family and network in, in Vietnam. And um, and also, they, you know, they've been open about what they know of use within uh, the community here. And and when people go back to visit family and um, uh, and go to Vietnam, they bring rhino horn back in. That's being smuggled? So it would yeah. be illegal to bring it in? Even yes, as it an individual. is. Yeah. So they're smuggling it in, in just little containers or whatever? And, uh, yes, that's what I've been told. And it's undetectable by the sniffer dogs? And, uh, well, I, I think that, um, you know, I think like... Many things there'll be a percentage of that's caught, but that percentage will be relatively small compared to what's coming in. So people bring it back for personal use. Giving the value of it, um, I th- think you mentioned there's a lot of fake rhino horn. That's correct. And like ninety percent of the trade is fake. And when you say fake, what what do you? And um, to? the um, uh, actually in Viet. Uh, um, one of the things that Traffic uh, worked out in uh, with their research in 2012 was that 90% of rhino horn in Vietnam was fake. It's actually water buffalo. And, um, and um, the South African government sent a contingent to Vietnam, uh, my, was my understanding, a couple of years ago, and they bought lots of... Undercover, they bought lots of pieces of rhino horn, uh, supposedly in in the in Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi, and and nothing turned out to be rhino horn. It was all fake. And so the fake buffalo, this this water buffalo. Mm. So is that just farmed commercially, where it's just they obviously don't they wouldn't kill the the water buffalo just to remove its horn. No, I, again, I don't know about the the issue around the water, but the reason is because. The target group for water buffalo uh, horn is not my target group, so um, that, is, that that is sort of fed into the traditional medicine side of yeah, things. Yeah. Um, I've really stuck yeah. with the the guys who are driving the demand for real wild rhino yeah, horn, okay. and that's yep. more the status end. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us about the latest campaign you've got coming out mm-hmm. before we um, wrap it up? Well, we've just um, uh, we've just launched this week and uh, our fourth campaign, and uh, and it's called the world is watching, and um, the reason for doing that is in this campaign we've um, because of uh, the international trade agreements that are in negotiation at this point in time, such as the TPP, where Australia and Vietnam are actually part of the twelve nations that are, uh, are involved in the Trans-Pacific. Partnership trade, a free trade agreement. Vietnam is getting more worried about its reputation internationally. So um, again, we've 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 focused in that um, you know that the the the. The, the sort of second-rate business people who are and uh, um, uh, would use rhino horn to negotiate business deals, but we've talked about the fact that you know the TPP is not just about economic growth; it's also about governance, it's also about scrutiny, and uh, and the world is watching. Mm-hmm. So, and that's gone into uh, the similar magazines that we've used in the past. So, uh, um, you know, the, there's Vietnam Investment uh, Review, um, Investment Bridge, bus- businessmen, business magazines targeting. Um, investment in Vietnam and you know, Forbes Vietnam is another magazine that we're using etc For more information on this incredible um, work that you've been doing 
where do we go? Uh, you can go to our website and uh, it's um, um, breakingthebrand.org and, uh, and that will give you some more information on, on the work that we've been doing. And, um, wow. Thank you so much, thank you. Um, thank you. Lynn, for joining us today. That was really eye-opening. Yeah, it was very illuminating. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for your time and I really appreciate the opportunity to share what Breaking the Brand's been doing and our, uh, our uh, the need and uh, the, the big need that rhinos have and, uh, uh, to, uh, to solve a lot of these issues because we haven't got that many years left. And you're approaching it from a very unique, in a very unique way that is not being done. So congratulations and yeah, we look forward to chatting about the new campaign and how it's going. I actually had a question. Oh, I never go got for chance it. to ask. <laughs> so you arrived you late. You yeah. started the show ten minutes in. Yeah, now you've got to a get question. a word in sometimes. Right. <laughs> it's never stopped you in the past. So. <laughs> I need more sleep at the moment. Uh, is that all right to go back? Yeah, to the go first? for it. I wanted something if it's all right, we'll just start the show about again. Half an hour ago, but I couldn't get a word in. You said it's a relatively new thing. What started it? Well, that. They haven't been able to really home in onto it. And um, there's some um, talk about a Vietnamese government official saying it cured his cancer, but they've never been able to home in onto who that person was. And what could be the case, certainly what I think might be the case and what others think might be the case, is wildlife traffickers um, know that it's so easy to um, uh, get rich from wildlife, they're starting to manufacture the demand. So they're actually creating it. They're creating stories. Um, so they're not just uh, exploiting the demand now, they're manufacturing demand. So it could be that the wild, wildlife traffickers just went, this is just such an easy way to make money and it's it's less risky than human and drug trafficking. Let's sort of um, build the amount of wildlife we can traffic around the world. And it's just was manufactured by them. Okay, thanks. I, I I wanted to know where it was coming from because it seems a strange thing to come relatively out of nowhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Australians love their digital equipment and that's all fine and good because it increases our quality of life but we need to think more carefully about what we're doing when we're finished with it. E-waste is growing at three times the rate of other municipal waste. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. Uh, now, I've just got a little bit of news here. It's, it, look, it was a really exciting Facebook page I came across on Sydney Fox Rescue's page. Um, Sydney Fox Rescue worked to advocate for and save animals deemed as pests by governments and legislation. And as we speak, they have two of their volunteers travelling 4,000 kilometres to pick up a very special dingo called Cooley. And they're saving Cooley from almost certain death in South Australia. Cooley was recently impounded by local council after frequent reports he was chasing stock and he was raised alongside the local Indigenous community there. Now, it is normal. Uh, the protocol for dingoes seized in SA is euthanasia, as they are a declared pest. Sydney Fox Rescue 
have sent these volunteers to pick Cooley up because they've been allowed. Basically, it's been a really beautiful story, lots of people working um, in collaboration. So thanks to the hard work of the local council in Kaduna, I think it is, in SA, and also with the Parks and Wildlife Officers there by Security South Australia as well, they've granted Cooley the permit to travel to New South Wales. Now, the thing is... Sydney Fox Rescue don't have a lot of money. So I think this morning they had 160 bucks. So if you've got, and they need to get to $600 to actually assure Cooley's safety and Cooley can be his story, um, hopefully a turnaround in um, how dingoes are perceived in Australia. Now, we have a massive story from Italy as well. Now, just I think it was just in the, the news last week that raising your children on a vegan diet in Italy has been outlawed. Hmm. That they... That's the powers that be have decided that that um, equates to child abuse, um, which is a really interesting development on the heels of a, a story maybe a month ago was that the, the new mayor of Turin is um, advocating for Turin to become vegan or, or at least vegetarian or at very least reduced animal products. So I'm wondering whether the, the this outlawing of vegan diets for children is perhaps a, a political knee-jerk reaction to the Turin Mayor's um, campaign. Do you know anything more about this, Andy? I've read a little bit about it, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. I, I agree 100%. This is that. But it's also driven, in, in my opinion, um, also by... Now, Italy, much like a lot of European countries and indeed Australia, has a very, very large meat industry. And in particular, they have what we would traditionally know. It's like there's a lot of meat curing and that sort of stuff goes on. And... and it's it's a multi-billion-dollar industry from Italy. They export and all sorts of stuff. So anything internally that contradicts that industry is going to come up against it. And when particularly when you have someone as high-profile as a mayor of somewhere that is as high-profile as Turin, bucking up against that system, you are going to get, from a political perspective, a backlash. And, and that's what we've seen happen. But the, the stupid thing about this is it doesn't take into account that Italy, like a lot of other European countries, has a very great disparity between people who have a lot of money and those who don't. So for them to use an argument that it's child abuse because it creates malnutrition is, is a furphy because there are an extraordinary amount of children that would have malnutrition for any number of other reasons simply because of a lack of money. Yeah. Have we got any other CSAs, community services? I think Andy's got a beauty. Uh, a couple, yes. Uh, tomorrow night um, in the Surf Coast Shire at the offices, there's going to be a vote um, by the council on the approval or not of a greyhound breeding and facility to supply the Victorian greyhound industry for up to 60 dogs. And where was that, in Torquay? Uh, it's in Winchelsea, which is part of the Surf Coast Shire. The land is zoned correctly and it's zoned farming. And this is the extraordinary thing about in Victoria and other states. Animal welfare and, and rights um, considerations are not allowed to be taken into account when um, approving or, or, or otherwise of a planning application under the Planning Environment Act 1987. They're, ex they're excluded from it. The thing that shires do have, however, is they're allowed to take into account community expectation and also if, uh, if it's unsuitable for the amenity of the area, for instance. And, and we're, we're pushing that angle. We're pushing like, the waste management plan they have in place is just non-existent. They're basically going to put faeces and urine into, into buckets and spit it around trees and, and all sorts. We, we, we don't want it. We'll have a protest. There'll be a protest out the front. Uh, Moscow Circus is having the first performance on Wednesday night in Geelong. They have animal acts that are travelling. Um, and today happening in Ballarat as we speak, there is a CPR and Ballarat Animal Advocates 
um, protesting against the jumps raising carnival in Ballarat today. Excellent. Um, I've got a couple of announcements. The Animal Condition, which is a doco, uh, a new doco, is screening in Hawthorne um, on Wednesday evening, the 24th of August. You can buy tickets for that um, in advance. Blood Lions is screening at the Brisbane Square Library in Brisbane CBD. They're free tickets, but you need to um, RSVP in advance to reserve your ticket. That's Wednesday evening, the 24th of August. There's going to be a river cleanup from um, hosted by Sea Shepherd Marine Debris Campaign. That's at uh, this one's in Launceston at Royal Park. That's on Friday, the 26th of August at noon. And one more is. Um, Japan Dolphins Day. They, they are, there's a peaceful demo being staged in Sydney's Pitt Street Mall. That's going to be Saturday, 27th of August at 11am. And we actually put all those CSAs on the Facebook page, Freedom of Species. And remember to make a donation to 3CR Radiothon by calling 94198377 and say it's for Freedom of Species. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.